Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a shoulder and sports surgeon in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing great, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, Eastern Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have a celebration for you folks because today is episode number 100, and I cannot believe we've gotten this far. It's been an incredible honor to have served as host um, with Rachel. And as a brief summary, in the 100 episodes we've released in the past three and a half years, we've had 205 guests. If you were to listen to the podcast from beginning in episode one to the end, this episode, it would take you over three days to get through it all. We've now recorded from six countries and multiple continents. So before we get into our episode today, I wanted to ask you, Rach, what have been your top few most memorable moments in the pod thus far? You know, Pete, each podcast is so different because of the guests that we have and the topics that we have. And it's been really fun for me to get to meet so many shoulder and elbow legends through this podcast. I think um, perhaps the most memorable for me so far have been um, the COVID episodes where we really shifted kind of our thinking as a society, as a profession, as a country, and as you know, part of the world. And we were able to pivot the focus of our podcast to focusing on COVID and how COVID impacted surgeries and education. Um, I really also enjoyed our episode on private equity. I think that's a hot topic. Uh, that was a recent one. And then uh, I've always enjoyed the complications ones. It's funny, you know, this is audio only, but as people are describing those complications and those x-rays, you can see them in your head, whether it's an elbow disaster or a fracture, reverse infection, you can actually see it despite not seeing it. And so for me, those have perhaps been the most memorable. How about you? Well, those are, those are phenomenal ones. I, um, I, I, I totally hear you about seeing the x-ray or even seeing the faces of people we've had on as they describe their complications and just understanding the pain they went through. You know, for me, the two most special guests have been the people who were my personal mentors, Dr. Tony Romeo and Kenya Maguchi. They were so important for my own training and such important people for me in terms of my growth. So to have them on to talk about, you know, their beliefs and their pathways was really a, a it was really a special experience for me. In particular, I remember Tony Romeo, and he gave this metaphor that I continue to think about in my head because it's so useful for understanding how to arrange things importance. And I'm sure you remember this, Rach, where he talked about, you know, think about you're trying to fill a jar and you've got big rocks and small rocks and sand and water, and it's so tempting to put in the water first because it's the easy thing, but you need to put in the big rocks first, and then you can arrange the small rocks and then the sand and the water. And that's the same way you should think about, you know, the things in your life, the, the big rocks are your family and your clinical practice. And the small things are the easy things to get out of the way, um, but that you should focus on the big things first. That's, that's been such a useful mentor for me. And it was such a special thing to, for him to share it with our listeners and for those two mentors of mine to share their experiences. Now, many of our guests have commented on this, but to me, the podcast is a continuity display of compassion, vibrancy, and excitement of the members of our field. And I cannot think of a better guest to share this celebration with than Dr. Joaquin Sanchez Sotelo. So Joaquin will no, need no introduction to most of our listeners, but he's currently the director of shoulder surgery at the Mayo Clinic. He's made countless contributions to our field. He's been a tireless innovator and educator. Joaquin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me tonight. So I wanted you to go through a little bit of your pathway. I know you've had a relatively unique pathway to get to shoulder surgery and to where you are currently. Tell us about your education how you came to shoulder surgery, and then 
how you landed in Rochester, Minnesota? Thank you, Peter. That's a very good question. And before I go into that, congratulations to Rachel and to yourself for these uh, 100 episodes. And thank you for everything you have done and continue to do for ASES. So as uh, you both know, I was born in Madrid, Spain. You may or may not know that my father was an orthopedic surgeon, but he specialized in hip and knee arthroplasty. And I did my residency in uh, Madrid at uh, Hospital La Paz. And in my training program, we had really good training and exposure to trauma, to hip and knee and to spine, but we had no exposure essentially to shoulder or elbow. I think partly because we love playing soccer in my home country, but we don't play baseball or basketball as well as you guys do in North America. So I felt there was a void in my training and I researched a little bit and found that Mayo Clinic had a very good program of uh, learning and teaching for shoulder and elbow. So I came for three months as a visiting resident, applied for fellowship, and somehow I was matched. And uh, when I was doing my fellowship, um, I fell uh, into the laps of uh, three of my mentors, Dr. Caulfield, Dr. Mori, and Dr. Driscoll, and I just fell in love with shoulder and elbow. So even though in my residency program I had literally no exposure, my fellowship training and major made me understand that for me at least, shoulder and elbow was it. And uh, then I went back to Madrid for two years because uh, I came in, in something called a J-1 visa, which uh, makes it mandatory to go back to your home country for a while. Uh, but uh, Dr. Mori called me back and I came back to Miokini two years later and the rest is history. Now, you've made an incredibly large amount of research contributions to a wide variety of topics. We're talking arthroplasty, elbow instability, infection, really everything. Which of these are you most proud of and why? What what really, if you could talk about one thing for the rest of your career that you've contributed to, what would it be? That is a great question to Rachel because I think for many of us, you know, we try to do our best for our patients, but it's so difficult to come up with something that will really change the way we practice orthopedic surgery. For me, my very small but most important condition for me has been the use of uh, allograft prosthetic composites in shoulder and elbow. So when I was in training as a fellow and early in my career, most upper extremity surgeons would consider doing APCs only using bone, so there was no soft tissue reconstruction. And most of the times, fixation was dependent upon the stem in the canal and maybe wire fixation. And after especially looking at some of the papers we did on early experience with elbow APC, I kind of realized that wire fixation wasn't strong enough. And I had the opportunity to cooperate with Dr. Franklin Sim, who was a giant in tumor surgery, and I used to do a lot of reconstructions for him. And he used to do these beautiful dissections where he would resect the tumor completely, but leave every single tendon that he could save perfectly tagged with number one bicrude. So I came up with this idea of using plate fixation for the allograft, which in retrospect provided not only compression for host to graft healing, but also rotational stability, which was important, but also soft tissue reconstruction where I was ordering grafts for both shoulder and elbow with tendon attachments, and that way we could repair the rotator cuff, the delta, the pectoralis, the latissimus, and then for the elbow, the triceps. And that has worked really well. So one of the reasons why I continue to favor APCs over tumor prosthesis, which I love, is the soft tissue reconstruction. So that's 
in a nutshell, the one thing that I am very proud of. But of course, there were other people before me that were instrumental, like Mark Frankel has a much bigger experience than me on APCs. And I'm glad to know that he's using plates now, which makes me feel very, very proud. Yeah, that's certainly something that's changed my practice and I think changed the practice of many listeners in that very, very challenging clinical situation where often you are, I, I, you know, I think in a situation where you're like, oh, I'm, I'm in trouble, I'm missing so much bone. And the addition of the plate in particular, I think, is a great, a great innovation. The addition of allograft to repair the soft tissues is another great innovation. So I, I congratulate you on that one. I mean, I think that's one that we will look back on and say that was, you know, a little bit of a turning point for those challenging cases. Thank you. you know, that's a, that's a place I think where you've made a big contribution. When you look forward into the future, what are the some of the biggest questions you think face us now? Like, what are the, when you think about all the things we do in shoulder surgery? Our biggest challenges, our biggest questions, or the things that we need to be most focused on over the next several decades? You know, that's another great question because, on one hand, I think we have made incredible progress as, as shoulder and elbow surgeons. And on the other hand, there are some things that are, to some extent, simple or basic, and we don't know about. For example, for arthroplasty, which I know, Peter, that you like a lot, now we plan really well, and in the next decade, we'll have many, many tools to get an accurate execution of our plan. But I would argue that we still don't know the targets for each patient. So we're choosing version inclination, sitting, rimming, and so on, based on what we think may work. And then we completely ignore or don't know what's going on with the soft tissues, or as you very well know, based on your research, what's the scapula doing in all these patients that we're replacing the shoulder? Something too for rotator cuff tears. I think we have incredibly strong mechanical constructs, but if you look at the healing rates, they haven't really changed over the last two decades. So we keep improving the mechanics, and the Rachel is an expert in this, and of course, biologics is what I think we're going to discover will really move the needle. Um, for sport injuries, I still think have a hard time getting patients back to return to play at a very high level for most injuries and also fast enough. And even for proximal humerus fractures, you know, we still struggle to try to prove that even for the displaced surgery, surgery is better than non-op. So those are things that I think we have to keep working. And finally, close to my heart, I really want to be able to offer my patients one day an elbow arthroplasty that I can trust as much as I would trust a shoulder or a hip or a knee. And those are the main things that I think are going to be facing. And finally, there is all this field of artificial intelligence, which I think is a double-sided sword because it's very powerful and it will allow us to uncover some aspects of our profession that we are not aware otherwise. But at the same time, if you don't understand the methods, you don't really know if it's good quality AI or poor quality AI. So that's in a nutshell what I think is going to be facing us in the future. Some simple questions, some basic, and also the field of AI. I think that's, it's just a perfect answer to that question. The AI one, I think, is particularly interesting just because it's there's so much excitement around that currently. But I think what's exciting about it is that we're discovering that it's very good for subjects around which we have a lot of high-quality data. Um, and I personally think that what we're going to quickly realize is there are some things in surgery we just don't have very good data about. And if we don't collect that data, we're never going to have good algorithms to analyze it. Um, so I, I completely agree with you that that's that, that tool, but understanding exactly how it works. And then the implant position question, 
So what, let me, can I ask you this? Sure. And I, 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 and I, 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 I say this with you having already said you don't know the answer, but when you put in a reverse, what does the ideal reverse look like? Is it in zero degrees of retroversion? Is it in 10 degrees of retroversion? Is it in zero degrees of inclination? Let's just talk about those two. Forget the lateralization question. What is the ideal alignment of the base plate? So, uh, Peter, that's a very good question. And maybe we can have another two-hour podcast talking about the topic. But <laughs> long story short, one of the challenges is that the different programs that you and I and Rachel use to assess these CT scans are proprietary and they give you different values of pre-morbid anatomy. So I did a study with some others uploading normal CT scans of people that didn't have pathology. And with the program I use, the average version was six degrees. So I typically tend to place my component using that reference. I think every, every reference is different in about five to six degrees of retroversion in reference to Fisman line. But I think version is very forgiving for reversal. If you're off a few degrees, in either direction because it's a hemisphere or two thirds of a sphere, you can get by. But that's what I try to do. I try to go into a slight retroversion in reference to Friedman's line using three-dimensional measurements. You heard it here, the perfect way to put in a reverse. We're gonna quote that for this 100th episode. <laughs> that's gonna be the tagline here. Um, so, you know, in addition to shoulder surgery, with respect to the ASCS, you've also made a significant number of contributions currently in line to be president. Do you have any specific challenges or opportunities that you're looking forward to tackling during your presidential year? And you don't have to reveal everything yet, but give us a little teaser, a little appetizer about what to expect. Thank you, Rachel. Um, full disclosure, I love ASCS. It's my society. And I love the vision statement, which is a world where patients have the best shoulder and elbow care. And also the mission statement that basically states that we're going to serve our patients and our members and then the society at large. And you can break that into multiple points. How do you help your members, your patients, and our society? And I think education is one of the main things that we must continue to do it. And if you think about it, we have the annual meeting we have the specialty day, we have the fellows day and the residence course, and that's it. We don't have any other formal educational programs other than online webinars and things like that. So in my humble opinion, we are lacking formal elbow education. We don't have an elbow only course, elbow is always kind of last. And also we don't have an opportunity to educate non-members in shoulder and elbow. As you know, the European meeting is open to non-members and it's a wonderful chance uh, to go and learn about how they do things in Europe. So I'd like to expand the educational offering of ASCS a little to include more elbow and also to expand to non-members. There are things that are going really well for research. For example, the multi-center groups are doing extremely well, so I would like to expand them and guarantee their funding. I think diversity, equity, and inclusion is super important, and that committee is working really well. Uh, Peter just came back from a traveling fellowship and he knows how important that is. So we have the obligation to provide visitors from Latin America, Asia, Europe, Australia with a really good learning experience. We also have to continue with political advocacy because uh, we have to make sure that we protect our members and they get compensated fairly for the work we do. And really understanding how do we lever ASCF plus the foundation plus the journals as a single cohesive unit 
to move short vulnerable forward. But my main challenge is to understand now we have a bigger society, how can I offer every member a chance to be satisfied and involved with the society? So that's in a nutshell what I'm thinking about doing in my presidential year. Well, I'd love to follow up on um, on what you started with, with respect to education. So as we all know, we all participate in a lot of meetings as faculty. There's, in addition to the ASES meetings, there's a lot of shoulder meetings. And I agree, elbow kind of takes a back burner, but there's industry-sponsored courses. There are OLC courses through other societies, be it ANA, AOSSM, the Hand Society, et cetera, that may, that may have some overlap. And then there are shoulder-specific meetings that we've all you know, been to and, and enjoy. There's one in Miami, there's one in Oregon, et cetera. How do you feel or where do you see this all going in the future? Because there's only so many days in the week, so many weeks in the month, and a lot of the content in these meetings is overlap. How do our members choose what's most important to get to, what's of most value, and how do we as faculty choose you know, how to best contribute our, our education? Yeah, that is a problem that I think we're all facing, Rachel, the uh, very, very large number of expanding meetings that we have every single year. In my opinion, it would be nice to have almost a consortium of meetings where the representatives of most of these meetings get together and maybe alternate. So I think it's difficult to justify having every meeting every year and still expect having attendees, having faculty and also financial support, to be very, very honest. So there are courses that take place every two years or every three years. And that will be my favorite because then you can still get a sense of what's going on in different parts of the country or different flavors, but it doesn't happen every single year. Uh, and that would be what I would like to see happen. You know, all these very important meetings that you mentioned and more, can we find a way to share the year so that maybe half of them are on odd years and half on even years or even every three years? Yeah, I think that's a... A phenomenal plan. Certainly, it's, I think, what they've gone to for many of the European meetings with the Paris and Berlin, and then these meetings are all every other year. Certainly, that's my partner has done that here with the ASAP meeting, which I think makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I think is unique about that is then it allows you to kind of reinvent the faculty, reinvent the agenda, because a lot changes in two years, and you really can't just do the same thing, whereas year after year, it's easy to say, well, this is similar to last year. That's exactly right, Peter. So if you do a course like every three years, you do allow science to change a little bit and then the content will change because there is new information. But if you do a course every year, unless you change the topic every year, it's very difficult to be original, to be honest. And we all know the importance of meetings, but I think if we were to alternate in a rational way like they do with the Berlin and the Paris and the Nice and the ANSI shoulder course, I think that would be better for all of us. You mentioned inside of that something that I think is very interesting um, that was is maybe not entirely evident when you first start going to meetings, which is that there's a funding issue hidden in there, which is that industry funds most of our meetings and that there is there's only a set budget that industry, you know, each company will allow to pay for these meetings and that there if there are more meetings, it's just a smaller and smaller slice of the pie that we fight over. In what way, you know, you're you're suggesting here for ASES that we're going to have more meetings. How are you going to fight against that? How what is the what are the actions you think ASES would take to try and 
mitigate that challenge of funding additional meetings that we would have as a society to further educate members and non-members. Yeah, I don't think we should have more ASCS sponsored meetings just for the sake of having another meeting. I'm just trying to find what are the gaps. And I think the main one right now, if you go across the country, Peter and Rachel, I don't think there is a single course that is just on elbow. And I think especially younger uh, or surgeons gravitate to that because they get no training oftentimes, even in fellowship. But it wouldn't be my vision at all to have 70 other meetings, you know, like it would be one or at the most two. And I think the key with industry is to make sure that you have a plan that you can present to them way in advance because they are also are responsible for their budget and they don't like surprises. So if you can work with them and say, this is my vision. And again, if there was a new ASCSL board course, I would do it maybe once every three years. You don't have to do it every year. And then you can basically gather funding for, for that part of, of the education efforts of ASCS just for one year of every three. I love that plan. So we've we've asked many guests this, um, but you know you've you've obviously had a unique pathway, been extremely successful. Many of our listeners are surgeons early in their careers. They're residents, fellows, students. You know, people that are early in their academic pathways or private practice pathways. What advice would you give to young surgeons on how best to succeed? What are the best ways to make it work as a surgeon? Oh, that's a very difficult question to answer, Peter, because there are so many facets about it. But uh, if I were to simplify in just a few, the most important, I think, is to always do what is best for your patient, period. So when you're in a situation where you don't know what to do with whatever, you know, um, if you take a step back and think, is this going to help my patient or not? You very quickly realize what is the best decision. So if you really care about your patients, that's probably the most important. The hidden value of that is that um, for most of us, the way you get more patients is by word of mouth. I mean, we all do social media, a marketing campaign, but if you look carefully at how you're getting patients, most of it is because you operate on a grandpa or a friend or the wife or the other shoulder or the other elbow and they keep coming back. So. If you always place the needs of the patients first, number one, you will be true to your values. And number two, patients will keep coming back because you're just a good doctor. So that's one advice. The second is to have people try to find what I would call the sweetest spot. We are all different and not everyone is good at writing papers or not everyone is good at doing complex arthroscopy or not everyone is good, is good at doing revision shoulder. So you have to know what you're good at and work on that. In the past, they used to tell many of us, if you're weak in whatever subject, you have to work really hard to get stronger on that. But the truth is that if you are not strong in whatever aspect of your profession, it's better that you dedicate more time to things that you're really good at. And then if you work hard on them, you will be successful. And then finally, I really like the idea of leaning on your mentors. I loved what you said about Ken Yamaguchi, and Tony Romeo, and I know Rachel has many mentors too, including Tony, of course. And um, the value of a mentor is incredible. Essentially, a mentor is someone that is defined as a person that will teach you from experience, not from reading books or papers, but that person can tell you, hey, I did this in the past and it just didn't work, so don't even try. A person that will listen to you when you're in, the, in your lowest moments and just being a listener is incredible as a mentor. And then someone that when you have a success will cheer for you uh, non-stop and having those people in your life 
uh, is just so important. So if you always work on behalf of your patients, understand yourself so that you work on your sweet spot and know your mentors, there is a high chance that many people will feel successful. So much great advice there. It's hard to unpack all that just because it's, I mean, it's a whirlwind and I bet we could spend a, an hour each talking about all of those uh, pearls for sure. You know, one thing I'd love to ask you about, um, and I, I love that I see you active on social media because a lot of, I would say, our more seasoned surgeons, surgeons who have been in practice, I think, longer, are less likely to be on social media. And there's a lot of feelings, like a lot of strong feelings on social media amongst our younger surgeons, our more senior surgeons, et cetera. And when I see you post, I always look at it because it's fun. You do it very tastefully. I know you're interested in what you're posting on. Tell us your thoughts on social media, particularly for our younger surgeons um, who may be starting their, their practices, might be using social media to help with their practices, and where you see that evolving in the future with shoulder and elbow surgery. Yeah, I think, um, uh, in my opinion, Rachel, and I may be wrong, social media and having what I would call a digital presence is actually important nowadays because think um, as a consumer, when you're going to buy a car or a present for Christmas or you're going to choose some clothes, we all go on the internet and many will check Google, you know, but many others will see what they find on social media. And I think today, if you want to serve generations of patients, they're going to find you through social media. It can be a very good, impactful way to amplify your research, provide high-quality content, and showcase what you're doing and basically create your brand. Something very important that you said is that, first and foremost, we're orthopedic surgeons, so you must be tasteful. So if you want to have a channel where you want to post more, you know, start more for your friends, but maybe less professional, maybe have a second channel that is fully private. But if you have an open channel of Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever it is that everyone can see, you have to make sure that the content is appropriate, always respectful, because we are basically showcasing the quality of our profession. And uh, I follow you on social media, and you do a great job in that regard as well. And everything is very crisp and clear and respectful. But I would recommend the younger uh, surgeons to get into it because it's the way we communicate today and I don't see it uh, coming back. And it's not for the younger people only. You know, today I had a patient that is 68 and uh, he came for an arthroplasty and he told me, I came to you because I listened to a couple of your podcasts and I went into your website. So we think it's only the uh, younger people, but older people use the phone all the time and they want to know what's new and they will come to see you because you have more novel content or explain it better. You know, it's funny you say that. We um, we just did a series of research studies focused specifically on sports medicine and social media with patients. And we've divided the patients up by age and other demographic factors. And you're spot on. It's, it's not just the younger people who are, or the younger patients who are looking for this. And I think in 2023, you think about when Facebook started, that was really kind of the first social media platform and where social media has evolved. You know, everyone is on it and they're going to see you or not see you. And that that's really the question is, do you want to be seen and why? Um, so the data, we're expanding this now to all of medicine um, within our school of medicine at Colorado. So not just orthopedics, not just sports medicine and shoulder surgery. So I think it'll be interesting. I think we're going to find the same results within our medical subspecialties. 
Um, and I, I think this is something, you know, potentially even with ASCS, you could expand to the membership uh, and see, you know, around different regions around the country where social media tends to be a bit more popular or not with respect to patients. So just, you know, I think you're spot on and your intuition with this is, is, um, is amazing. So th- again, thank you for posting what you post and I look forward to continuing to follow you. Thank you, Richard. And one other comment is that, unfortunately, it is actually, as you know, very time consuming. So if you want to have a really nice video on how you do your meniscal root repair, like the one that you posted in your channel recently, is so well done, right? But I bet you took you forever to get all the titles, the footage, the inside camera, the outside camera. So it's a lot of work and some very high profile uh, influencers in orthopedics, they, they actually work with a company. You know, I don't do that. But if you want to be very professional, you can consider investing some of your own funding into that. But because it, it takes time, but I think it's worth it. Yeah, I totally agree. You want to well, thank you. You want to if I, if I'm showing something that I'm doing, I want to make sure it looks right and correct. And a lot of people ask me, "Hey, who who does your social media or who puts together your videos?" And it's me. You know, I do it. I don't know that I necessarily trust someone else to highlight the surgical pearls or nuances particularly if you're describing complications or something hard as opposed to just a a nice arthroscopic video. So yeah, it is very time consuming, but I find it, you know, I I find it gratifying. It's educational. And, um, and even if two people looking at you and me, you know, I'm, I'm happy that at least someone looked at it. Yeah, I think surgical video in particular is a way you can be very, very influential. And definitely if you have a good surgical technique, if someone else watches it and uses it, that's a way you can help their patients as well as yours. Exactly. Now, Joaquin, we, we've asked many guests this, but I'm particularly curious to hear your answer. If you could have dinner with anyone in history, who would you have dinner with and where would you have dinner? Wow, that's a good question, Peter. Um, let me start with the restaurant first. Um, I have many restaurants that I like, but I don't know why I'm in love with the uh, restaurant at the second level of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, that restaurant is magical, uh, maybe because I, I went there for the first time with my mom uh, who passed away and I have fond memories about that and I had a couple of family events there and just being at the Eiffel Tower and that's so elegant they are and the food, that will be the location. And the person in history, this may come as a shock to many that know me because I'm not a very religious person, but um, if I could meet uh, Jesus Christ, that would be the person that I would have dinner with and really understand what is it that we're doing all together in this world and what the future holds and all those very existential questions that we all struggle with. So Jesus Christ at the Eiffel Tower is my answer for that question. I hope it's not too much. I'm trying to picture what Jesus Christ would say when he sees the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) I'm sure he's seen it before. (laughs) I want to thank you for coming on and spending time with us. That was a... um just a tour de force. I mean, we really appreciate your time and your expertise. And, um, you know, this was, this has been phenomenal. Again, it's a special opportunity for us to do this for the SES. And I can't think of a better way to spend episode number one, episode number 100 than having you on to talk about your experiences. Thank you both. It's been a wonderful time. And again, thank you for all you do for ASCS and for our community of children and elbow surgeons and sports in the case of Rachel. And I'll echo Pete. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. We know you're incredibly busy and we really appreciate everything you've shared with us. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. Again, thank you to our guest for episode 100. And for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.